0: You're listening to Orange County's only station with critical business information, Critical Mass, with your host, Rick Franzi.
1: And welcome to today's episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. This business talk show airs live on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Heard exclusively here on internet radio station, octalkradio.net. If you're listening to this show as a podcast, we would encourage you to consider listening to the program live during our broadcast time. This show is brought to you by our commercial sponsors, Smart Stop Self Storage, Succession Strategies, Commerce National Bank, and Smart Business Magazine. The goal for this show is to help you, our listening audience, make better business decisions. If you're listening to the program today live and you'd like to participate in the conversation, In either segment that we have today, find the community chat room section of octalkradio.net's website, log in with your Twitter ID. This will bring you right to our engineer who today, let me look, oh yes, it's Paul Roberts. He'll bring your thoughts and ideas across the screen to me. Possibly we can work them into either the interview that I have later with Melissa Yoon and Michael Katz, or with our first guest today, CEO and Principal of Capstone Affluent Strategies, Darren Pastor. Darren, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show.
2: Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it.
1: Let's get started very quickly. Just uh, have you talk a little bit about your kind of professional background and your path to Capstone Affluent Strategies.
2: Sure. Prior to becoming a CEO and Principal of Capstone, um, I spent uh, some time in the beverage industry, um, early in my career, and then in 1996, uh, got exposed to the financial services industry uh, through an actual financial advisor. Um, at that point, I, I kind of fell in love with the industry and um, started working um, as a financial advisor myself for a number of years. Um, enjoyed some um, some solid performance uh, as far as helping my clients and all the rewards that come with that personally and professionally. And then was promoted on to senior-level positions at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and also at the Prudential Company of America.
1: And how did that lead you to Capstone?
2: That's a great question. So, the reason why we started Capstone is myself and a group of some of the best, most experienced, well-educated people in the industry, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, they're actually they have the reputation to back it up um... what we decided was that we would collectively go out and start our own firm because we felt as though we it wasn't fair to be tied to quotas Um and then on top of that being pushed in the direction of proprietary products we didn't feel as though that was in the best interest of our clients um... we didn't think that a cookie cutter one-size-fits-all whether you have you know fifty million dollars in your uber affluent right down to somebody who's just starting their retirement account um, is the right approach. So I guess it came down to, you know, ultimately it's our face in the mirror. It's my face. I have to shave every morning. (laughs) And we just decided that we had to do the right thing and, um, be independent, objective, and provide our clients with the right approach, a more holistic approach by listening to them and then making the right kind of, uh, strategic investments, uh, and giving them the right kind of advice that we just could not give them at those large firms.
1: That's interesting. You're independent, but I believe you also have a relationship with LPL Financial.
2: Yes, correct. LPL Financial is the largest independent broker-dealer. So they, um, you know, we run our own company. We clear our trades through LPL. Uh, they're right there in uh, San Diego. Their headquarters, and uh, you know, they're a huge company. Uh, they give 13,000 other brokers the same opportunity they've given me um, to start their own firm to do what's right for their client and they allow us that independence and flexibility. They're really hands-off, and they're great operators. So we couldn't be more happy than to uh, have teamed up with LPL.
1: You may have already answered the question then, but I was going to ask, and maybe you could, if there's anything else, what factored into your decision of selecting LPL over other potential partners?
2: Their size, one. Um, The fact that they are local, you know, they are a Southern California company, um, so if, you know there's something they need to discuss with us or we can discuss with them, we can get you know, face-to-face pretty quickly. Uh, just you know, head south on the 405 and we're there. Um, the other reason why is when we, we were kind of trying to figure out you know, who we were going to team up with, they, they, they just outshine the competition. There's some great competitors out there of theirs. Um, there's, there was a lot of different people we took a look at. We actually uh, examined uh, 10 broker-dealers. Uh, we narrowed it down to a top three, and LPL came out on top.
1: Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Because I'm, I'm not sure that even, regardless of their size, that maybe a lot of our members of our listening audience are familiar with the brand LPL Financial and what it means to them when they have an advisor who is partnered with them.
2: Well, yeah, that's a, that's actually a good point. And they're not really a well-known brand. Um, and you know, in our own right, either is Capstone, and, and we're working on that. But uh, what, what somebody gets when they partner with an advisor who is teamed up with uh, LPL. Um, you know, in this independent platform, they get, again, one of the largest broker-dealers in the country. So you get all the coverages that you would get from the Securities Investment Protection Corporation and all those things that come with that size operation. In addition, what you get is you get a hands-off approach where they actually allow, you know, the education, the expertise and the licensing of the financial advisor to direct the client in the right um, direction as opposed to, mandating, again, some cookie-cutter approach, um, just strictly based upon the profitability of some homegrown products.
1: Excellent. I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit inward on you, if if I might, right now. And that is, of all the experiences and lessons that you've learned through your business experience and partnering and helping with clients, I'm wondering if you've developed kind of an overarching strategy that allows you to lead capstone. Kind of, we refer to it here many times on Critical Mass Radio Show as your guiding principle. And, Darren, do you have one that you could share with our audience?
2: We do. It's actually it's wrapped up in our name. Um, so, if, you know, our CFO, Hal Johnson, came up with our name, and uh, him and I were kind of throwing some names around, and you kind of have that aha moment because we were trying to, you know, what what are we about? What is that guiding principle? What is our northern star? And it's reflected in our name. So if you think about the word capstone, right, it kind of represents the apex of someone's professional achievement. Affluent isn't necessarily you know, a destination. It's more of a journey, a place that people may want to go to. And we believe we have the right kind of strategies to get them there. So our guiding principles actually wrapped up in our brand name.
1: That's powerful. That way, you never are far from it, are you? That's really a that's you're the first guest that I can recall in the close to 700 guests that we've had on the program who's made the link between their guiding principle and how they branded and named their firm. So, thank you for cutting new ground for us on the radio program.
2: Thanks for saying that, Rick. I appreciate it.
1: All right, we're going to take our first commercial break, Darren. And when we get back, I'm going to ask you to share with our audience, and and I'm curious to hear it as well, uh, how you and your firm's been able to grow at such a rapid pace during what has been very difficult economic times. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're all about growth this month here on the radio program, and we have an excellent guest in Darren Pastor who can share his growth strategies and story with us right after these words from our commercial sponsors.
0: Dot com.
1: I got stuff to the right, more stuff to the left. Got enough stuff, but I can't take a step, so I smart stop It took a minute to think I need a little better spot, not under the scene. with smart stop. I leave the stress at the door, because it's the smarter way to store. Smart stop bucks the system. Your first
3: month's rent is just a buck. Your next three months are half off. Call 888-97-STORAGE and mention this station. Goodbye clutter,
1: hello floors. Smart stop, the smarter way to store. Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. And if you're going to reach out to SmartStop Self Storage because you just need a little extra space, make sure to let them know that you heard their commercial here on Critical Mass Radio Show, heard live on octalkradio.net. All right, let's get back to Darren. Darren, I said before the break we are going to ask you to share a bit about your growth story. Would you give our audience a little insight into how you've been able to realize such rapid growth?
2: Yeah, we've had a lot of rapid growth, and I appreciate you recognizing uh, that since we started the firm uh, in October of uh, 2012, we've actually grown the firm 300% year over year, um, which is, I would say, a successful growth rate. I, I believe the reason for that is because, again, getting back to the executives and the leaders of this firm, and this is what really, really differentiates us from other people. We have experience on both the buy and sell side of investment banking, retail financial services, and our leaders have extensive educational backgrounds in their respective fields. So we believe, look, I can't go head to head with, you know, some of the behemoths that are out there. So we have to just be a little bit better at some areas that we're very, very disciplined in so that we can bring real value to our clients. We make sure that we have personal relationships with our clients. The CEO of the company, the guy you're talking to now, is available to all of our clients. Um, and we're doing that with really thoughtful, caring, well-educated, very experienced financial advisors who all, by the way, own a piece of the company. So we've, I've gifted out stock. I thank them for taking the risk and believing in our vision, believing in Capstone, So the people you're talking to while you're sitting down with a capstone financial advisor is also an owner of the company. So that's why I think we've had the kind of growth rate that we've had. We're just treating our people different, and that, again, is being passed down to the client.
1: You know, the recent years leading up to 2012, the Great Recession, the uh, economic issues that we faced, the financial issues that we faced, they must have shaped They have shaped your industry and changed it. I'm wondering if you could uh, share with us, because your experience predates starting Capstone in this industry, what have you seen as the major changes? And Talk to our audience of business owners and CEOs and executives a bit about your profession and what it's gone through over the most recent few
2: years. Yeah, I mean, so I think everybody could just pick up the... uh... You know, look at the front page of any periodical uh, throughout the country and, and they've seen it. And unfortunately, a lot of them have been affected by it in, in ways that are you know, really even rough to talk about. Um, as a manager of a financial services firm, the client, I think, uh, has abandoned the iconoclastic brands of the past. I don't think there is that brand loyalty. It would um, it almost be like Coca-Cola losing its its image um and and we and we've done it to ourselves as an industry but those big brands they just they they don't mean what they used to mean and and uh and that's a change um that I think will take a long long time to fix it, it might even take a generation um so what that did was that opened up the door for capstone and independent firms just like ours to say hey look you know we're here you know this is why you do business with us you know, we don't want to be associated with, you know, something that's not in your best interest. We don't want to trade against you. We don't want to, you know, take positions against you just for the sake of profit. Um, we want to treat you as our client and help you retire in dignity um, and protect and, and preserve your wealth. And I think that's kind of been the biggest shift is that, you know, the, I've worked for the biggest brands, the biggest companies at the highest levels. In financial services, and I just I saw a total shift um, during this recession, um, which you know we're just starting to come out of now, um, away from these huge brands. I just the brand loyalty is not there.
1: Listening to your answer brings up another question that I, I want to ask you, Darren, and maybe you can comment on it. It seems to me then, given that the opportunity for a high touch. Relationship based competitor such as Capstone is perfect in the industry where people may have felt burnt by the larger institutional firms that you referenced. Is, is that a fair, is there an opportunity then for an entrepreneur like you and your partners to create a high touch model that addresses that, exactly what, what seems what to doing. be the ill, at least part of the ills of the industry?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly what gave birth to this. It, it, you know, again, we, We had, you know, a moral problem with what we were being directed to do. And ultimately, you know, this is our life. And we made a decision to shift gears so we could provide that high touch that you're talking about. But it is, is what the industry did to itself and ultimately, you know, how it affected the, the global economy that created the opportunity for that kind of independence, high touch that, that you're referencing. And that's, that's, that's what we're all about.
1: And I'm not asking for any uh, financial advice, but for those that are listening, those who have the benefit today of listening to the program live realize that we've hit a milestone in in the economic recovery, if you want to think of it that way, at least as it relates to Wall Street. Um, what's the mood today in your office relative to, you know, the closing of the market
2: well, we had no champagne at the office today, but I'm quite sure if we <laughs> did, they'd be cracking it out. But, um, yeah, people are excited. I mean, it's, a uh, you know, the, the market is back, right? It's at an all-time high um, from 07. I mean, it, it took, you know, it took a long time to get here. Um, you know, the NASDAQ has a long way to go to get to where the Dow is today. I mean, the NASDAQ back in 2000 was at 5,000. Today it's at, you know, uh, 3,200. But I mean, overall, the the economy seems strong. And and just to not to get too technical, not too long on the tooth, but the price to earnings ratio right now at the Dow, at fourteen, is twenty percent cheaper than it was at the all time high in '07. So I still think we have some ways to go, and um, that's why people want to talk to uh, myself and our advisors.
1: Uh, it's it's exciting. Let, let's talk about your personal experience, and I, I love to ask guests when it's appropriate if you could share an experience that happened to you where in the time it might have been difficult or even painful, but you came out of that with a valuable learning experience as it relates to business. Do you have a situation that you can share with us like that, Darren?
2: I do, and painful is the, uh, the key word. Um, and uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so it, uh, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I will not mention the uh, the organization's name out of respect to uh, that organization, and the people who work there who I'm still friends with. Um, but as a senior manager, I was on a conference call in October of 2007, and um, the market was doing quite well then, as, as we just spoke about. And um, based upon certain things that I saw, based upon conversations I had with, you know, People I respect in the industry. Um, I instructed my sales team, so there are about 50 financial advisors on the phone, also senior level managers, people above me, um, also on this phone, and I advised them to get their clients out of the market based upon some of the things that I've seen and based upon my experience and to move them into gold or cash equivalents. And uh, for that, I was, uh, keep in mind, I was a the top performing uh, manager at this firm, and I was reprimanded and also threatened to be fired. Uh, in hindsight, it looked like I would made the right call because it was in a year almost to the day before the market totally crashed. So, um, what happened was I built my, for lack of a better term, street credibility with my financial advisors, and um, you know, I had to make a, a choice whether or not I was going to. Make that call, um, instruct them to do that and uh and you know the firm really didn't appreciate my opinion, um, but those financial advisors um, followed me to Capstone, and some of them traveled three thousand miles to uh, be here in some sunny Southern California with us um, because they believe in you know that kind of conviction and uh willing to take the risk to do the right thing despite a corporate agenda. that
1: must have been an unpleasant experience, <laughs>
2: Yes, it was. I was uh, um, probably didn't sleep for about two months after that. <laughs>
1: so. Yeah, hindsight's you know twenty twenty, but in the moment, it, it it you know looking back on it, it sounds like oh well, that's an obvious thing, a good guy. But in the moment, it's hard to when you work in a culture, it's hard it's hard to step out and do something like that. I I uh, want to recognize your fortitude in doing that, Darren. That that's a good story. Thank you for sharing it with our audience. Sure,
2: I appreciate it. Right.
1: All right, final question, easy one. Someone who wants to learn more about you and Capstone Affluence Strategies, how do they find you online?
2: Wow, I, I appreciate that. So they can go to Strategies spelled out, dot .com. They can also reach out to us by phone at 1-866-798-4478. And myself and our team of financial advisors would love to talk with you.
1: Well, you know, I said that was your last, my last question, but I just realized I had one more for you. Is it true that you're a nominee for the Orange County Business Journal's Excellence in Entrepreneurship Award?
2: Well, because we're on the radio, you can't see, but you just made me blush. But yes, actually, I guess I, I am a nominee, and uh, I'm honored by uh, the thought that uh, they put into it and, and being part of such an elite group uh, in Orange County.
1: Congratulations, and uh, I'll be covering the event for Critical Mass Radio Show, so hopefully I'll be able to see you at the luncheon later in March.
2: I'm looking forward to it, Rick. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome, Darren. Thank you for being a guest on the radio program. Welcome to the Critical Mass community and continued growth and success for your firm. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was Darren Pastor, and he is, as we said, the CEO and president of his firm, principal, I should say, not president, excuse me, CEO and principal of Capstone Affluent Strategies. We're going to take our second commercial break and then we're going to come back with our next two guests here on Critical Mass, the radio show.
3: The Orange County Business Journal has ranked Commerce National Bank the 26th fastest growing public company in Orange County and they remain a Bauer Financial 5-star institution. President and CEO Mark Simmons attributes this success to how well the bank treats its customers and employees. Commerce National Bank simply delivers personal service at a higher level than its competitors while offering technology on par with the big banks. If your organization could use a new business bank Call Mary Miller, Senior Vice President, at 949-870-3863 or visit them online at www.commercenatbank.com. That's commercenatbank.com. Give Commerce National a chance to do better than your bank and they will handle the rest.
0: Can we talk about your family business? you know that thing you put your whole life's blood sweat and tears into well what happens when you retire or try and pass that business on to your children at succession strategies we can help you find the answers we will guide you through the unsettling process of protecting your family legacy and successfully passing your business on to the next generation safely and securely ensuring that it'll both survive and thrive
4: and learn more about our executive peer group.
1: Welcome back to Critical Mass Radio Show. This program is one in a series of programs that we air here on internet radio station, octalkradio.net. On Wednesdays, our show features Orange County nonprofit organizations and their leaders. On Thursday at 3 p.m., our nationally syndicated show, Coast to Coast, features small and mid-market business leaders from across the country, just like the name suggests. As I said, all shows can be heard live here on Internet radio station, octalkradio.net, or they can be rebroadcast anytime you wish from Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcasting services. You can find a link to all of our programs from our website, which is Critical Mass. Four, F-O-R, our next two guests are Michael Katz and Melissa Yoon. They're going to join our show today to talk about a seventeen point three million dollar jury verdict that they secured for one of their clients. So I'm gonna I'm excited to have Melissa and Michael on the show. Welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show.
3: Thank you. Glad to be Liz. here.
1: It's Michael. Hi. Thanks, Frank. Hi Michael. Hi Melissa. Let's begin by asking if you could talk a little bit about your professional background and and sort of what led you up to forming your own limited liability partnership.
3: Uh, I think I'll I'll field that question first. I, I started practicing law in New York with a big white shoe firm called Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. And um, to tell you how big and how venerable they were, Cyrus Vance, the former Secretary of State, was the Eminence Grease and Dick Beattie, who orchestrated the KKR takeover of RJR Nabisco, was rising to prominence in the firm at the time. And then my wife got a job at UCI here in Irvine, and so we joined the firm of Morrison & Forster, and I moved out to the West Coast and became a partner there and was working in the big big firm context for over 15 years. And that's sort of my beginnings. Melissa, why don't you...
5: As for me, um, I started practicing law in Los Angeles at um, O'Melveny Myers. L.A. is their headquarter office. They're all over the world. They're quite a large firm. And I came to O'Melveny after clerking first for a federal judge in L.A., and I was um, pretty set on becoming a federal prosecutor and wanted to go down that route. Well, after a few years in practice, I decided I was much more committed to remaining a civil litigator, and uh, kind of fell into the area of employment law, and that's when I really discovered that I enjoyed being a lawyer.
3: And so um, we recently decided to start um, our own LLP, Katz and Youn, a boutique litigation firm, um, for a variety of reasons that kind of meshed. Um, for my part, I was becoming increasingly discontent, if you will, with the constant battery of conflicts that arise in big firms where you want to represent someone but you can't because they're adverse to someone the firm already represents and you have a burden of never-ending increases in your billing rates which means that uh, you can't always service the clients that you want or the cases that you want uh, effectively or efficiently and um it becomes difficult to justify the increased rate structures on on most cases or with most clients that that became a matter of discontent that I thought I could I could ch- solve if um, I started on a platform with a much leaner uh, cost structure, if you will.
1: Let's talk for a minute about your practice. Now that you're in a partnership together, you're practicing law together, you have the freedom to choose more than you did before. Tell us a little bit about the practice.
5: Rick, our practice is we're solely a litigation boutique firm which means we are um, in an adversarial practice where most often in court or we are opposing uh, other parties, whether it's sometimes it's before litigation in um, trying to resolve the matter before any kind of court filing. Sometimes it's an administrative matter, such as before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing or the Department of Labor. Um, excuse me, that's uh, on the employment side. We also do some employment advice and counseling for businesses. And I should mention that with respect to employment litigation, we have an exclusively defense practice. So we are representing management and advising businesses solely not prosecuting employment claims unless there's one caveat, unless they are um, trade secret claims. In that case, we, uh, will take on a matter where we are prosecuting a trade secret claim, because those are often brought on behalf of businesses uh, against other companies or other employees after the employees depart from their employment and uh, take some confidential proprietary information with them.
1: So so let me ask the two of you, and I'm not sure, Melissa or Michael, if you'd like to answer this. It's it's my perception from watching the law practice on the outside, and certainly some of the better TV shows right now are based around your profession, that the litigators are sort of the sharks of the, uh, of the law profession in a good way. Is,
2: is, is that true?
1: Is that a fair characterization? Am I talking to two great sharks here on the
3: phone today? <laughs> I think there's a lot of different kinds of sharks in the ocean, let me put it that way.
2: <laughs>
3: so certainly it's a fair assumption but I think that you know there's a very great diversity in types of lawyers and a lot of corporate and transactional lawyers are uh, their own form of shark as well, if you will. Right.
1: Is it as exciting as it looks to be a litigator?
5: It can be. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's what? certainly a lot of drama that Hollywood puts into it. Yes. There's not um, scenes like the classic from A Few Good Men are really not <laughs> scenes that happen in our lives. Um, when we are in trial, I think the trials themselves are very exciting, but it's on a much different level. It's not manufactured drama like you see on TV, which sure. obviously you have to tell a story within a finite period of time. Um, but there's, there's, it's, it's our own level of excitement, shall I say.
1: I think um, it sounds very interesting. I realize it's not what it's made out to be on TV, but nonetheless, it does give you an opportunity to argue your case, and I, I would have to believe that's an exciting part of the practice, and maybe that's part of what attracted you both to it. So, continued success. Michael, I'd, li- I'd like to ask you, you know, the Internet's allowing a person to share. You talked about, Melissa talked about intellectual property. So, So, you know, the Internet is just, rife right with examples of people sharing other people's intellectual property without the originator's permission. Can you describe some new trends in defending intellectual property? Because it seems to me, as a layperson, that's getting harder and harder to do. And maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe it's not getting harder to do. But could you share a little bit of your expertise in this area?
3: Well, I, I, I can tell you this. It, it's, there's been a very recent development that I find very... Interesting and challenging and a little perplexing, too. Last week, a new system for uh, enforcing intellectual property rights, particularly copyrights, was adopted by Internet service providers, not all of them, but the major ones. And I would say that includes Comcast and Verizon and Time Warner Cable, for instance, I think AT&T and Cablevision also. they adopted a new sort of um, self-policing system called the Copyright Alert System. And what that does is it allows someone who owns um, copyrighted material to alert the ISP that they believe their copyrights are being shared. It could be a video or or it could be um, music. And then the ISP will send a a warning, if you will, to the user. And the warning could consist of an email or a pop-up message saying, hey, (laughs) we're aware that you're doing this. And they, they have a six strikes rule, which means that after six warnings, the Internet service providers will implement some kind of punishment, and different providers are implementing this in different ways. So they may limit your download speeds, for example, or eliminate your access to popular websites until you complete a course that teaches you about piracy and copyright infringement. And this system, I think, is fascinating because it will require the Internet service providers to engage in a very high uh, Lee intrusive um, way of uh, monitoring its users. And so we're continuing down the path of trying to balance the rights, the privacy rights of users and the free use of the Internet, if you will, with the rights of copyright holders. And this presents a, a, a form of Internet vigilantism, if you will, that may work or it may not, but it certainly will excite a lot of attention in the legal community. I would say that's the most recent and most interesting development to occur, and it, it was just initiated last week. Wow,
1: I'm so glad to have you both on the show. That I was not aware of that, and you're right, that sounds highly intrusive. I mean, I can see... I, I don't even know how to have a follow-up question for that just because it, it seems to me to be not Big Brother-ish, but sort of a step in that direction. But I recognize the challenges faced by people who are creating you know property that's being freely shared people don't perceive it has any value and they just want to give it away and it's not fair to the people that cre- the artists that created it
3: so uh, Rick, i think the problem with it perhaps is this um, it may be intended to address the most egregious downloaders and sharers of content uh, as opposed to you know the average user and certainly six strikes is a lot you know if you run afoul of it once six is a lot more but the problem is most um, mo- most people out there who are engaged in massive amounts of copyright infringement have at their disposal technical means of avoiding detection, like using virtual private networks or cloaking software. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the intrusiveness that this represents is a bigger problem for your average user. So I, you know it's hard to anticipate how that it will unfold, but certainly a lot of the people in the legal community will be watching closely.
1: Okay. Melissa, let's, let's bring you into the conversation and I want to change the focus a little bit. You know, let's get, it'll be with the internet, but the internet's creating kind of a blurred line between business and personal boundaries and the workplace. I coach and work with business owners and CEOs, many of which listen to this program. There's a constant conversation about social media and limiting and not limiting. So I'm wondering, can you discuss new employee litigation trends that Combat this issue
5: <clears throat> I'm happy to I there is actually not just litigation trends but um, this conversation is very timely because there's also some legislative trends so first of all with respect to a legislative trend California um, got a law on the books this year and it's surprisingly not. Um, California is not the leader this time in getting the law in the books, but it precludes an employer from asking a job applicant or um, an employee to disclose personal social media information, um, which would be uh, their personal social media login information. Um, they're prohibited; the employer is prohibited from asking the employee to access their personal social media in the employer's presence. The law also prohibits an employer from asking an, an, an applicant or an employee to divulge any personal social media to the employer. Now, what does divulge any personal personal social media mean? Well, that's always up for interpretation. That's why we have uh, lawyers, right? <laughs> um, and the law prohibits retaliation against any employee or applicant who refuses to comply with a request that violates this law. This is in labor code section 980. Um, and the law defines social media very broadly, which may be the next question, um, on some of your listeners' minds. It's, you know, I think there's a tendency to think of social media as Facebook, but obviously it's a lot more than Facebook. And the law defines it as electronic serve, any electronic service or account, electronic content. It could be videos, still photographs, blogs, video blogs, podcasts, text messages email, um, et etc. et cetera. what's on Facebook or what's available on social media is quite broad, as we all know. Um, important to note that the law does not uh, prohibit an employer from requesting personal social media information in the context of an investigation involving, um, say, potential charges of misconduct against an employee or involving an employee or a violation of the law, for example, if somebody contends that they were um, harassed or that they um, experienced some type of discriminatory conduct by another employee on um, Facebook or in the context of another social media platform, that information potentially could be requested in the context of an investigation, so long as the employer has a reasonable belief that the information requested is relevant to the investigation. Um, That's kind of what's going on right now from a statutory or legislative perspective to, to combat, if you will, the line, the ever-increasing blurred line between social media or somebody's personal online presence and a work presence, from a litigation perspective, there's also some pretty interesting things going on. Um, some employees, for example, may post something negative about the employer on Facebook or tweet it. And maybe that then engenders a digital or electronic conversation between employees, um, about working conditions. That potentially brings hmm. into play, interestingly enough, the National Labor Relations Board. An employee, if there, if there is adverse action taken against the employee because of that content that was tweeted or posted on, on Facebook or the discussion that ensued thereafter, the employee can potentially file an unfair labor practice charge with a National uh-huh. Labor Relations Board, which is very interesting because traditionally we think of the National Labor Relations Board as something that just is of concern to unionized workforces. And as w- we all know, unionized workforces are a very small percentage of the workforce today. But this touches um, private employers. So the National Labor Relations Board actually issued uh, two memos last year to provide guidance to employers on social media issues. And interest- another interesting development along that front is the National Labor Relations Board, when they get wind of things like this, then they start to look further under the hood. So they start looking at an employer's social media policy, for example, and D- determining whether the policy itself interferes with um, rights employees have under the National Labor Relations Act—it's a very interesting issue right now.
1: It sounds—it—it it, it sounds like one of those issues too for a business owner where you—it's almost better not to pay attention. In some ways, just to let it go because you could open a door and a can of worms for yourself that could. It sounds intimidating on its surface, and it sounds like something that could be very unpleasant for a small, and many of our listening audience are, you know, small and mid-market business owners. The idea of the National Labor Relations Board just feels like that's an unfair battle <laughs> for that. Oh,
5: yeah, yeah. The one one area of concern, though, is to the extent in a, a business has um, trade secrets that they Want, uh, or that they're afraid an employee perhaps who's disgruntled may, um, misappropriate or improperly disclose. That is one area of concern, obviously, where an employer would be able to, um, I, I don't want to suggest, uh, that there be monitoring of social media accounts, but to the extent somebody comes across something or learns of something that potentially involves disclosure of company confidential and proprietary information that would certainly be a different story.
1: You know, it's almost unfair to have uh, you both here on the radio program because unfortunately or fortunately for you in the areas of your expertise, there's no short and simple answer to these questions. There's, There's a lot of subtleties to it, and I think that's why it's very important for business owners to seek out competent legal advice in these areas especially every year there seems to be new and different laws that you got to stay current on because it's it's a major challenge in the area of intellectual property you know and employee theft small companies they are subject to employee theft of their intellectual property as well you don't have to be a major brand in the marketplace to have that risk from your employees do you i mean it can i'm sure michael or melissa you've seen it for Small and mid-market companies that lose valuable intellectual property through their employees.
3: We see it a lot, and what we also see a lot is a hesitation among many small and mid-market companies to use lawyers, except when they're finally in trouble. And a lot of times, the issues could have been avoided. But and I understand why, because you know we, in operating a small business, are also trying to be cost conscious and using. Vendors or outside services or consultants simply adds cost to the doing business. And yet many of the problems that we see are avoidable with some arrangement with attorneys that allows this discussion to take place in advance of the harm or the or the problem. So it's a chicken and egg thing, but not that we're here to encourage people to consult lawyers, but it, it oftentimes can be a very wise thing to do.
1: This isn't one of those areas where you can just use your gut instinct and your past experiences and sort of make a business, an informed decision. You know, the, part of this radio program is to help our listening audience make better, more informed business decisions. And in the area of this type of advice, sometimes as it relates to employees and labor law especially, it's almost counterintuitive what the right thing to do is. And, and I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I agree with you, Michael. Seeking legal advice makes a lot of sense. We're we're running out of time. We only have about three minutes left on the program. I can't let you guys go without at least asking if you can share a little bit with our audience. You know, at at the tease, we said we have you on the show just on the heels of winning a $17.3 million jury verdict for one of your clients. Can you share a little bit about that verdict? It's just uh, I'm intrigued by it.
5: Sure. um, I will... Field that one, at least in the first instance. I um, was one of the attorneys trying the case, and the case was on behalf of a woman who lives in Los Angeles, and her apartment was uh, destroyed in a fire. Her apartment building was owned by Donald Sterling, who owns the Clippers, and in the wake of that fire, I'll try and say this as summarily and quickly as I can, knowing that we don't have much time left. Um, she was threatened with eviction. Uh, her apartment was condemned, first of all, due to the fire damage. And she was then threatened with eviction if she didn't continue to pay rent uh, after she couldn't live in an apartment in her apartment. So we were able to, the story is uh, much longer in terms of um, what claims we had and how we were able to establish Damages, um, but we were able to secure a verdict for her that um, included roughly two and some two point three million dollars in comp- in compensatory damages and 15 million dollars in punitive damages. And I actually have to footnote that story with uh, full disclosure that we um, are not plaintiff lawyers and this is not our typical case this was a legacy case that came with us from our prior firm when we opened our doors and we saw it through to verdict.
1: Michael, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, that is not that you need to. I mean, that you did a great job, Melissa. Lucky lady to have I'm you defending her, representing her. That's it.
3: I mean, uh, you know, um, I would say this. At trial, whether you're representing the plaintiff or the defendant, um, you need to have trial skills, and um, if you're hiring someone, As a lawyer, you need to hire someone who both has litigation savvy and meaning they know how to litigate before the courts and evaluate your claims, but also at the end of the day be able to try the case, which is a different kettle of fish, if you will.
1: Tell me if I'm accurate in this, too. You know, litigators also have to be good at research and preparing and analyzing and strategizing to bring their case in front of the courts. I mean, it, there's so much pre-work that has to go into prepping it and being ready. I, it, it, it must be a fun part of the job, but it also requires, I think, somewhat a little different skill set for the successful litigator, not only the ability to present the case, but to prepare it and be ready to present it.
3: You're exactly right. You need to have all those skill sets, and you need to use them at the right time. Um, it's not just one skill. Um, it's multiple skills, and it's also being able to work with people and clients and being able to adjust your expectations and their expectations to the reality of constraints, including, you know, limited budgets or witnesses who are unavailable or evidence which is stale. There's a lot, of, there's a lot to it.
1: Final question for either one of you, Melissa or Mike. If you have someone out there who is considering a, pursuing a law degree and getting into the profession, Do you have any advice for those individuals?
3: Do it. Don't do it. Go for it. I would never say don't do it, even in this day and age. I would say do it for the right reasons. Um, When Melissa and I were coming up, the law jobs were much more plentiful upon graduating, and many people took law as a backup career and then either morphed their careers where they wanted to go or followed follow things along willy-nilly, I would say now anyone considering a law degree should think long and hard and investigate at the front end whether they really want to be a lawyer, what kind of lawyer they want to be, and um, how to go about doing it because the jobs are more scarce now because the industry is going through changes. Yes.
1: Thank you. Melissa, if someone wanted to find your firm online, learn more about your practice, how do they find you? What's your website?
5: Sure. Our website is www.katzyoon.com. That's K A T Z Y O O N.com. And there you would find uh, it's, uh, our website is under construction, but you'll find a landing page and, most importantly, um, names of the attorneys in our firm as well as contact information, phone and email, both, and our physical address.
1: Well, I appreciate you both being willing to be on the program. Thanks for sharing a a little bit about your new firm and your successes. Continued success in 2013, and thanks for being a friend of the program, and welcome to the critical mass business community.
5: Thanks very much, Rick.
1: Thank you, Rick. Goodbye, Michael. Goodbye, Melissa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed our radio program here. My engineer is giving me the time to leave the show sign, which I appreciate. So, I'll just say that my engineer is the always punctual Paul Roberts. Our producer is Rachel Franzi. Our guest coordinator is Kathleen Shepard. And our marketing communications manager is Kelly Faltas. I'm Rick Franzi, your your host, and saying, I hope that all of your decisions will move your business in a positive direction.
0: You've been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show right here on
2: octalkradio.net.